Before we begin this episode, Victor and I wanted to talk a little bit with each other and with you about the tragic events in Highland Park, Illinois. As most of you know, I live maybe 10 miles from where this mass shooting happened. And Victor, when he is not at UCLA or interning at the White House, lives a little bit west of Highland Park. And so I know I for sure know people who were shot. I know many people who were there. And I know in the days that come, I will find out more about people that I know who were impacted by this. But Victor, I think we are all impacted. I think it is well past time to say that we have to ban assault weapons. No American needs to own one for hunting or for self-defense. It is not necessary, and it is simply a weapon of war. It's something I saw when I was general counsel of the Army, and that I hope I will never see in a mall, at a 4th of July parade, in a church, in a synagogue, in a school. And that's what we've been seeing week after week after week. So if you are like me, please join in the effort to get much more serious legislation passed to protect our communities, our schools, our churches, our temples, and to end the scourge of guns and the violence that they cause. Victor, how does your generation feel about it? Well, like you said, I don't actually particularly live in Highland Park, but this actually hits pretty close to home because my first ever campaign or any political involvement was with uh, Congressman Brad Schneider, who represents the 10th district. And the first thought when I read the news was, that's where I marched just three years ago before COVID. I used to do the July 4th parades, and it was with his campaign team, and we would march down the same road that um, the the gunmen uh, shot fire at. And it was just particularly hard to see that road turn into the pictures that we saw yesterday, just truly devastating. Um but in terms of how my generation feels about it, I think my generation knows how this feels. Um, we have to go through s- uh, school shooter drills. We have to go through evacuation drills. I mean, this is a problem that faces my generation. It faces everyone, particularly young people who have to live in fear about whether or not you know they're going to be in school and they're going to get shot. Um, and that's not a reality that anyone should want to live in. Um, and we're seeing this not just in schools, but like you said, in churches, on you know, in parades, um, nightclubs, really anywhere where people gather, there's a threat of being shot. And I think that it's way past time for something like assault weapons to be banned, something like, you know, raising the age of the purchasing age uh, for buying guns. All of those things should be under consideration and really need to get passed. Um, you know, it won't solve everything, but it will uh, make this better. And that's all we can hope for now. Uh, hopefully Republican lawmakers can grow a spine and actually act on this because um, we really depend on it. And hopefully we can all vote to come November for elected officials who actually care about us. You said something, Victor, that touched me, which is you go through active shooter training. In my generation, we went through um, nuclear attack training, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, bomb training, bomb drills, And uh, many of the parents, many of the adults who were in the crowd who were interviewed said, my children knew what to do. When we got home, they drew the curtains, they closed the shutters because they go through these active shooter drills. And as you said, that's not a world that any of us wants to live in. And I'm hoping that our listeners will take this to heed and will take action. Don't be depressed, be active. That's my advice. Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shiem, a rising junior at UCLA, was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden and also co-hosts this podcast. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, the author of The Watergate Girl, an MSNBC legal analyst and former Watergate special prosecutor. And I wear Jill's pins, hashtag Jill's pins. Today's is a book in honor of our guest, who has just written a very wonderful book. And 
Today, we're going to be talking about the fact that across America, there are elected officials, the vast majority being Republicans, who no longer believe in the fundamental principles of democracy and legislating. Bipartisanship is now a distant memory. 50 years ago, elected officials from both sides of the aisle acted on matters including impeaching then-President Richard Nixon and passing legislation that strengthened democracy and prevented abuses of the presidency, including all the post-Watergate reforms. I'm hoping we can return to that era, and we're going to look today at who is best suited to right the wrongs of previous and current elected officials. I would argue that the solution is having more young people vote, run for office, and serve in elected positions. And our guest today, David Gergen, not only agrees, but he has a brand new book called Hearts Touch With Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made. And I think Jill can show up a copy for uh, our audience watching. Uh, this is a book that provides a guide for emerging young leaders. He draws on his personal experience, historical events, and recent headlines. Uh, it's a great book and one that I, as a young person, appreciated a lot. For those who are unfamiliar with David, he has devoted more than half a century to public service. Coming off a Navy stint, he served as a White House advisor for four presidents, Nixon, Ford, Reagan, and Clinton. In the 1980s, he began a second career serving as the editor of U.S. News & World Report and for five years as a regular Friday night partner with Mark Shields as a PBS commentator on McNeil and Lehrer. Sadly, Mark died recently, and we give our condolences to David. David, now and since 1999, is a professor of public service and founding director of the Center for Public Leadership at Harvard's Kennedy School. And for two decades, he has also been a senior political analyst for CNN. Thank you so much, David, for being with us today. Thank you. My pleasure. We're very excited to have you with us, especially at this sort of historic time. It's the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in, and we are involved in the January 6th committee hearings, which have been, for my mind, very exciting and productive. You've served in administrations of both parties, and so let's start by asking you about your assessment of the January 6th hearings it, it is a, a time of enormous tension within the country, uh, and I think the January 6th hearings uh, only underscore that. But so does the, you know, the, 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 our legal system is in upheaval right now. The, the decisions that have been coming down from the Supreme Court uh, have left uh, many people sort of stunned and startled by what they're hearing. And, uh, and of course, the economy is not getting any better. So um, <clears throat> President Biden has his hands full. That's certainly true. But the country is facing some, I think, some increasingly perilous times in the short term. Um, as for the as for the hearings themselves, they've served more of a public purpose than I would have first imagined. You know, these they, they, we, when we went through the whole impeachment process, for example, on a couple of occasions, you know, there was a sense that well, what was there? There was no smoking gun. There was no. It didn't really prove all that much. It didn't come to, you know, it didn't come to sort of resolution in the public mind. Uh, and this looked like just one more attempt. It wouldn't be very meaningful. I think it's been highly meaningful. Uh, we don't know yet about, uh, as at the time we're speaking, we don't know yet whether what the Justice Department's going to do, what the Attorney General is going to decide, whether there'll be some sort of prosecutions coming out of this. But we do know uh, that the, the president of the United States was far more engaged uh, in this whole process on June 6th than we imagined. Uh, he knew exactly what was going on. Uh, he, uh, no matter whether which side you come down on about whether Ms. Hutchinson was, was, had the truth in her, uh, I think the point of what she said stands and it has not been refuted. And that is the president knew that many of the people who came to the march were heavily armed. He knew that they were extremely dangerous. Uh, and yet he he urged that they go forward with it. He, he, he did not try to stop the uh, the assault. Um, and, you know, his fingerprints are all over it. I, I just don't see how you can say, you know, he had no responsibility. He had a lot of responsibility, a lot of accountability. What we don't know is how the law applies, and that's something the Justice Department, working with evidence, is going to have to conclude here. And I would think they'd want to move expeditiously. I, boy, I certainly don't like the snail's pace they're moving at, but 
Do you think that these hearings have changed the minds of independents and Republicans who might be watching more than Fox News? And also, how do you get Fox News viewers to accept the facts? Uh, uh, so much depends upon um, uh, what happens here in the next the next few months. So first of all, I think that uh, Donald Trump, even if we haven't heard from the Justice Department, I think he's been damaged by by these hearings. I think it's uh, I think it's now clear that in some districts in the country, you can now run as an anti-Trumper or a non-Trumper as a Republican and and win. Uh, there are other parts of the country where you will lose. Uh, it, it, it does seem to me that a lot of the victories that Trump people are making, getting at the ballot box in these, uh, in these primaries um, are coming from really pretty far down ballot. Uh, there are people who are running for sort of somewhat lesser offices. The higher the office, the, the more likely it is, uh, uh, in my judgment, that the anti-Trump people will succeed. And, and gradually chipping away a lot of the president's aura. Donald Trump remains the, the most powerful person in the Republican Party. Um, he remains the person most likely to become the nominee of the party. Uh, but for the first time, you have you sense, I sense that changes in the air, uh, that we're moving into a period in which he's no longer going to be um, sort of occupy the full space of the Republican Party. There are going to be others we're going to be stepping forward. Um, we'll have to see where that goes. This is, remains an extremely conservative party, and I'm sure many conservatives feel vindicated for all their efforts that they've gotten. This, they, they've gotten these results from the Supreme Court uh, that, as I say, are, are stunning. Um, who would have imagined we'd be where we are now with regard to abortion uh, and, and, and all of its implications? But uh, on climate, for example on guns, on so many of these different issues. But the, the climate decision was a huge, huge setback for people in the climate field. And frankly, it's it's more threatening to the country in some ways than the, th the threats represented by Jan January 6th uh, against our democracy. Uh, the, the, the climate change, if we really set back the whole effort to deal with climate warming, you know, we will, that's, that's such a perilous road to go down. Uh, I don't think we fully appreciated it yet, just how destructive it may be of the efforts that have been made, uh, faulting as they have been, but the efforts that have been made on the climate, I think, are really have fallen a little short. And everybody was looking for a way to leapfrog forward instead of we leapfrog backward. Um, we'll see where we go. Yeah, I mean, I have not had a chance to read the full EPA decision because it was announced just moments before we started recording this episode. Right. But from the part that I've seen, it goes way beyond just the environment and the threat to our health that that poses. It really is the start of dismantling the ability of expert agencies to take actions that are required to protect the health and safety of America. And right. um, but so let's go back to the the Republican Party as sure. as it is today. Um, because I think you're right that the committee has already proved a lot of the culpability being Donald Trump for the violence on January 6th, for the lies that led to encouraging the crowd, the lies that continue to this day, um, and to showing all the other parts of this overall conspiracy to unwind democracy. Um, and so, you know, we're back to the question of is there anything that the January 6th committee can do that they haven't done? Or is this all up to the Department of Justice holding him accountable? Or can Congress take actions? Um, the 14th Amendment under the insurrection um, statute that would keep him from holding office? Um, is there anything that you think can be done based on, you know, you have more experience in government from both sides than almost anybody else. And so I'm just looking for your expert advice on this. Well, I'm not sure it's expert advice, but uh, but my view is, yes, the committee has still has a very, very important role to play in writing a report, uh, bringing this together, integrating all the evidence that it's piling up 
um, and trying to reach some sort of conclusions. Now, there, I, I do think the Democrats made a mistake early on by by uh, allowing this to become such a partisan you know, uh, setup in the committee. I mean, there are only two re- two Republicans uh, who were, who were on the committee, uh, and they are sort of re- regarded as renegade Republicans. Uh, Liz Cheney and, and Adam Kinzinger. Um and you know, so I, in some ways, I think that they, that gives the Republicans a handle to say, "Well, this was a partisan group to start with, and we always knew they're going to come after the president. There's nothing new here, et cetera, et cetera." You can imagine the arguments. So, how the how does the committee break through and try to convince Americans? No, really, there is something that's very, very definitely new here, and we are there was much more of a threat to our democracy than people had understood before we started these hearings. We've had some startling testimony. This is not normal. This is not, you know, and it, can the committee, can the committee report make a difference? I, what I don't know is how far the committee can go in, in urging uh, uh, indictments. Uh, this is supposed to be sort of hands off, let the justice department decide uh, what's next. If the committee can find ways to send signals uh, that sort of you know move the process along without, you know, you got to be you got to be careful. If the Justice Department is a heavy-handed here uh, and comes down really strongly in a very what what appears to be a very biased way against Trump, that will be a setback for the people who are trying to uh, find more accountability. So how that how that report is drafted and how uh, persuasive it can be. We don't quite yet know. I don't think we actually know fully uh, everything the committee knows. Uh, so it, it, that that report may take a little time to write. It may it may not be something you come you you uh, you whisk through a typewriter really quickly or, or or across your computer. So I want to ask you a question about something you said because sure. uh, we we both lived through the Watergate era and yeah. we saw a bipartisan, truly bipartisan committee doing the questioning, and there was no grandstanding. People asked legitimate questions and listened for the answers, whereas the committee, which was originally proposed uh, by Nancy Pelosi as a fully bipartisan one, except that the Republicans chose to appoint people who were not going to make this a legitimate inquiry. They were going to use it to disrupt and dismantle the actual evidence adduced. So it ended up being what it is now, which is bipartisan. Um, the, you know, nobody has better Republican credentials than Liz Cheney. So it, it's, and or more conservative credentials than the two uh, members from the Republican party. So I, I don't know that it would have been helpful to have had Jim Jordan, for example, on the committee, disrupting and screaming and shouting and making a mess of it. Um, in a way, it's been able to present, I think, a very clear narrative without the disruption that would have ensued had Jim Jordan and others of his ilk been appointed. And so maybe it was a big mistake for the Republicans to not appoint more people. They had the opportunity to appoint people who were willing to take the the investigation seriously. And that would have been helpful. I would have liked to have seen that. But to have people who were only intent on making a circus of it doesn't seem to me that that would have been helpful to the American people and and or to legislation proposals, legislative proposals that might ensue from these hearings, which is, after all, the job of the committee. Yeah. Well, let me, let me say this. First of all, I, I think the committee did a, a very artful job in, in presenting testimony and presenting excerpts from various uh, interviews that they've had. It was, it was I, I thought, was, was done with far more uh, sophistication than we've seen, than we even saw in the, in the impeachment hearings. It was, a, you know, so in many ways, what they've done, I think, has been more damaging to the president. But I will have to tell you, I, I don't agree that with the notion that by that Nancy Pelosi made this and turned it into a bipartisan kind of hearing. The, the, when you have a nine-two, a nine nine Democrats and two Republicans, it's you can hardly call it 
in my judgment, uh, bipartisan. I think it's I think it's very vulnerable to attack on the right, on Fox News and elsewhere, in a way that will bring along um, a lot of the, the the Trump folks in believing. Well, they were just it was a setup, um, and yeah, yeah, it was sophisticated, but it was still a setup. Um, and people were looking for it. So in that sense, I, I, I think this is a judgment call. But I think in retrospect, I bet Nancy Pelosi wishes she had a few Republicans on that committee. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see where the committee goes. But let's turn to your book, Hearts Touch with Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made. Um, it's a book that really offers anyone who reads it, especially young people, um, I think practical information about effective leadership and why public service is so important. Um, you write about how now is somewhat like the Civil War. Um, we're tearing ourselves apart, but we can't seem to yeah. stop it. Talk to us more about that and contextualize for young people why this moment is so different and I guess so much more dangerous for the survival of our country. Well, uh, we have had ex- existential movements, we have our moments in American history when our democracy has been under threat. And I think this is going to go down as one of the most significant uh, we've seen since uh, in at least 60 or 70 years. You know, historians like John Meacham and others and, uh, um, have basically argued, look, that you have to remember, and you can be encouraged by the fact that the, in the early days of the Republic, we were where our backs were up against the wall. George Washington's men, his, his army, you know, lost the first six out of eight battles that it fought. And, and all, things almost went over the side. And we almost lost our democratic republic right there and right in the beginning. So that was one big existential threat. Then we had another with the Civil War, which was, and, you know, which has led to enormous bloodshed, more bloodshed than we've seen in any other war. Um, and as a proportion of the population, just devastating. It took years and years and years um, for the country to recover, especially the South to recover. Um, Jim Crow obviously was a setback for the South, but the um, but that was a second big existential uh, time. And third was the, the Great Depression, uh, where you know the unemployment rates went through the roof. Um, there was a real push on coming from radicals who were, you know, trying to seek a different way of uh, being. And then finally, the Second World War itself. Um, and if you look at all of those and how we came, we came through all four, even though there were dire threats. And we've come through this so far. But I, I, I must say, I think that um, it, what we don't see is an end in sight. I, I think we, what i I personally believe we're going to have a much rougher time in the next four, five, six years. I'm a short-term pessimist about the next few years because I do think that we're very likely to come through the uh, off-year elections and the general elections uh, even more poisonously divided than we are now. Um, And we could be at each other's throats. There are so many people who are so angry now. Um, on the left, they're just terribly angry at the right for what's been done with the courts, what's been done in so many other, other uh, instances, and what's been left, what we've been left with. But there's a lot of anger on the right as well. And so I think the exhaustion, the anger, and everything else um, has, is going to is going to be debilitating. It's going to be hard to govern the country uh, well. Uh, and what can we do about it? Well, I, I, what I'm encouraged about and where I see signs of hope is if you look out over the horizon uh, at what's coming, um, I think in the long term, we have much better prospects. In particular, I would underscore the fact that we have rising generations of millennials and Generation Z who in the long term, I think, are going to, you know, are going to be pushed back and help to restore uh, our uh, a greater sense of democracy. It's, it's illustrative, for example, Victor, that who, who stood up to, to tell the truth in these hearings and made such a difference? It was a 25-year-old woman, 25 years old, and she spoke with both authority and, and, a, and, a, and a calmness and a sort of a self-anchored uh, person. Uh, she, we had every reason that she, she was compelling in her testimony. And I think she was the single most damaging uh, person to emerge from these hearings. And what we see again and again now uh, are young people rising up, speaking truth to power, in many cases, truth to conscience. 
Um, and in, in recent time, the young people are speaking, getting up and speaking truth to craven cowardness uh, on people who are making all sorts of allegations and, and, and leading all sorts of leading us to through a set of lies that have deeply, deeply uh, conflicted the country. Um, so, I, you know, thank goodness for the young. And I think if you look, if you look over the years ahead, I think our best shot, and increasingly our reliance ought to be upon cultivating the younger generations, preparing them for lives of service. Um, the more we can move back to the notion that we serve each other, we're all Americans, we're in, we did, as the saying goes, we came in different ships, but now we're in the same boat together. I totally agree with that sentiment. And you described yourself as a short-term pessimist, which, you know, you just, you describe in your book how you're a short-term pessimist, but a long-term optimist. And I think that really came yeah. out in your um, answer. I, I want to ask you about the how you open your book and you write about a young girl from Sweden who we all have become very familiar with, uh, Greta Thunberg. Tell us why you start your book by sharing her story and what do you think she says about my generation and young people in general? Well, I I think Greta Thunberg is is a wonderful illustration of the power that young people can exercise today. Um, And with the new social media in particular, social media has turned out to be a two-edged sword. On, on one edge of the sword, it gives access to, to people like Greta Thunberg uh, and to Malala and to others that they might not have otherwise have had. They were young, uh, and, but they reached us through very, very effective uh, uses of the social media uh, and through you know, protest and resistance movements were very, very effective. Uh, and I, I, as much as we now learned to have found as well that social media can be you know, you've been be misused as well. You can put all sorts of lies out there and you actually can get people to believe the damnedest thing. Uh, but as a general proposition, uh, I think that the, that it's time for a changing of the guard, uh, you know, a passing of the torch, as, as the saying goes. Um, that today's, the, the boomers of today have had an opportunity, an ample opportunity to try to govern the country, and they haven't been able to do it. Um, they're, they're, it's, been, it's gotten to be a bigger and bigger mess. Um, and, you know, I, I think there's so much poison now in the current generations that we really do need to have them step back and have, have new generations step forward, starting with Generation X, which people born between 1965 and 1980, they, they're coming into their own uh, in terms of their professional lives. This is a good time for them to serve as a bridge to a better future, to get more involved and in, in trying to clean up our politics. But I think the long term, really, you know, we, we must rely upon the millennials and Generation Z. I think they're our great hope for the long term. So can we get into that a little bit more? So what do you sure. think separates my generation, so Generation Z, and maybe even like younger millennials from, say, yours and Jill's generation? Oh, I think your generation is uh, uh, much more about change, social mm-hmm. change, uh, economic change. I think your, your, your generation, uh, my generation, I w- I'm a basically born just before the, uh, the, the baby boom was born. You know, baby boomers were born just after the Second World War. I was born during the war. Um, and I, I, I do believe we've become too much a status quo generation. I don't think we sought, sought the changes. We haven't been able to sort of solve our internal conflicts. We, we were sort of because we have this red state, blue state mentality now uh, that, that, that my generation, the boomers, We've 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 been a divided generation since, uh, frankly, since childhood. You know, some some children were some boomers were born with parents who wanted who were in favor of change and they became change agents, but others became traditionalists. So, you know, a lot where depends on where you went to college. In my generation, if you went to college in um, you know in, in in Texas or Oklahoma or the Dakotas or Wyoming or places like that, you tended to come out as a as a traditionalist. Uh, someone who believed in the old-fashioned ways of doing things and, and, and was very unsettled by the ch- social changes that have been taking place. Um, whereas if you went to school in uh, Massachusetts or Rhode Island or uh, California, 
or Chicago, if you went to Illinois and many places, certainly in big cities, um, you came out with very different sense of, of, of values. You know, you weren't a traditionalist. You know, our mentor was, you know, for that group was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Um, <laughs> the, and, and that generation is still struggling, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Um, but I, I, uh, I just think that the boomers, you know, were the, the 60s and 70s, especially the Vietnam War, put an ax right down the middle of, our gen- of the boomer generation. And that was so different from what we'd seen in the years preceding when the World War II generation, which, which ran the country, essentially from Jack Kennedy up to George Bush Sr., we had seven presidents during that period of time who were the Second World War presidents. Every single one of those seven presidents wore a military uniform. You know, uh, six of them were in the war itself. One, Jimmy Carter, was still in the Naval Academy when the war ended, but he went on to serve honorably as a submariner. Um, and, you know, they just had a different set of values. It was, they were very patriotic. They, they, they had fought under the same flag. They, they wanted to work under the same flag. And what you found then is they brought into our politics a, a bipartisanship that we haven't seen since. When, when I first came to Washington uh, and you looked at the House of Representatives, I would say maybe 70% of the people who were in the House of Representatives were, had been, uh, were veterans. Um, and they set, they set the, the, the tone of our politics and the bipartisanship. Uh, today in the, in the House of Representatives, we're down to about 15% of veterans. And I think that has made a major difference in the uh, philosophy and the, and the tone uh, of our politics. I think one of the reasons we've had such a hard time uh, is that you know, so few people have served. And that's one of the reasons why I think we do need national service. We need we need to encourage young people to give a year back in service to their communities. If, uh, some person, anybody between 18 and 24 ought to give a year back uh, to community, and then we ought to knock a year's debt off their, 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 their tuition debt, um, you know, so that they have more freedom in life. Um, but I, I, you know, we, we've learned that people who serve in military uniform can work together. Now what we have to prove is that people who, who serve domestically who can do things here at home in hospitals and climate change and so many other things, um, and especially schoolhouses, they can make a difference too. Um, and you know, I think if people, I think if people get into the spirit of giving back when they're young, you'll find that over time that will come back again and again. They'll be more civic-minded. They'll vote in higher numbers. They'll do it in a more civil way. They'll learn how to work with each other. Uh, it's possible to restore that. And I do think, um, one last point, uh, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. and his dad, Sr., the two, two leading historians, uh, made the argument that American politics moves in cycles. We tend to move 15, 20 years in one direction, a more conservative direction. And then as we see problems with that, we, the, the liberal side of the house pushes back and we move in a more liberal direction uh, for 15 or 20 years. The pendulum goes back and forth. And I think that the time is coming and what I think distinguishes the younger generations today is they're much more pro-change. They're much more government government uh, involvement. They're much more for spending more money, uh, investing more money in education. Um, they're much more scientifically um, uh, uh, oriented. They're much more about innovation. Um, and frankly, they're much more about equity. And justice. I think the, the there are just numerous surveys which make it clear uh, that Generation Z, in particular Generation Z, uh, is well to, to the social change, progressive side of the of the plate, um, much more so than the than the boomers. Boy, that sounds like a world I want to live in. Um, well, really. I think it's cool. I, I do think that I mean, I've come back to this this young woman, the Hutchison woman, and her testament. Twenty five years old, standing up to all those guys up there, you know, and knowing what, you know, that she has to return home to be with all her, her conservative friends. It's not going to be easy for her. It uh, won't be. And and it, I think it's important to note that all of the witnesses, um, with the exception possibly of the election workers who we don't know their party affiliation, right. nor should we, but they've all been Republicans. So 
if it isn't bipartisan in the sense of being, you know, five uh. Democrats and four Republicans, it is bipartisan in that all of the witnesses against the uh, issues uh. at stake here have been Republicans, people who wanted Donald Trump to win, just weren't willing to cheat to do I, it. I, that's a fair point, and I'm glad you made the point. I, I do think that I think that the, the witnesses, and that's why I thought the committee did such a good job, actually of producing the kind of show that they did. Uh, what I'm arguing, though, is that there is still space out there for Republicans to come along and argue. You know, this was a setup. Well, like you, I remember bipartisanship as being good, compromise as not being a dirty word, that that was how things got done. Legislation got passed by by that means. Oh, and, and, and to remember, too, that, that Watergate was less threatening uh, to the country than what we're seeing now, because in Watergate, Republicans truly did play a, a role in, in correcting things. Howard Baker and, and you know, Goldwater. Uh, were pivotal, and you, Scott, Pennsylvania, they, they were pivotal in telling Nixon, you've got to go, you don't have the votes. And, they had, and so you have to give, and, and there's been nothing like that coming from the leaders of the Republican Party uh, with, with regard to Trump. Absolutely. And, and so that brings us, I guess, back to your book in a way, when we talk about leaders and right. your book about leadership. Um, and so let's let's look at that. And, you know, I've seen... Um, presidential leadership from a lot of perspectives. I was lucky enough to serve in the Carter administration, but for that, I certainly looked at the presidency and leadership of Nixon by listening to his conversations and being, of course, appalled, not just by the crimes, but by by the whole concept of his leadership. Um, And then seeing what bipartisanship meant and um, I also studied leadership while I was general counsel of the Army because having seen leadership in the Nixon presidency and then seeing um, what I thought were really great leaders in the military, I yes. wanted to see whether it was something that was, you know, do people go to West Point? Are they pre-selected because they are leaders or do they learn leadership? And um I, I went and observed leadership training classes at the Naval Academy and at the Air Force Academy and West Point. And I sort of came away with the conclusion that you can teach leadership. And partly there, it's not just academic, but it's by saying, okay, you're now responsible for yourself. Now you're responsible for a little teeny group of four and eventually moving up to squads and battalions, et cetera. Um, yeah. And so, Talk about whether you can teach leadership and whether you think that we're doing that in our education system. Well, that's a really, really good question. And, uh, you know, in my judgment, the best leadership training for many institutions for the young are our military academies, especially, you know, West Point, I think it had a record now going back before the Civil War. Um, the Naval Academy, the Air Force Academy, you know, and in the, the, the success we've had with, especially with the Marine Corps, you know, uh, all of that has, has, in my judgment, given us role models uh, for the kind of civic leadership we ought to be looking for in the future. And it's one of the reasons I think, I feel very strongly that people coming out who were defined by the service in the Second World War, the World War II generation, are the best generation we've had in the last 50 years by, by far in terms of governance, the capacity to govern well. And, uh, and as an army, a perfect institution, no, you know from your experience there that, that they can go, go off track, that, that sometimes people, some of the people we're training up will go off track, whether it's in the Army or the Air Force in particular or the Navy, we, we, and the Marine Corps, we've seen that. Um, but I, I, I do think that what we don't have is a, a set of role models on the on the non-military side. You know, I think we have the George Marshalls that we can look back to, the Dwight Eisenhowers we can look back to and say, where did we find, you know, such wonderful people? And they and by and large, you know, they didn't come they didn't come from money. They didn't go to elite schools. 
they came up in a more hard scrabble world and they then they learned how, how to be tough uh, you know one of the things about leadership you realize is it's not just the the idealism you want to unleash but it's also the toughness and the sort of the will to get things done to get big things done um, and returning to those days and remembering as much as we ought to be teaching about what went wrong back in the 1600s and 1700s and you know we need we need to uncover a lot of that uh, history and make sure people are aware of it we also need to uncover and re- have people have people remember what what the kind of leadership and hero- heroic quality that we saw in the world war ii generation so so one of the things you write about in your book that i thought was fascinating was this like kind of inner leadership and, and how yes. you really have to understand yourself. And yep. I don't know if you've ever heard of Brene Brown, but she does some really yes. interesting work on leadership and how you really can't be present and connected with others unless you are present and connected with yourself first. Yes. I'm wondering how important is that for leadership? And talk to us more about that kind of inner and outer um, kind of yeah, journey, well, I, if you will. I don't know Brene Brown, but I have I've come to admire her work. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad you raised her, her name. Um, and because she does reach, and she reaches, she has a big following. Um, the, um, but the, uh, the idea of an inner journey and outer journey uh, has deep origins going back to uh, Joseph Campbell um, and others who have uh, written about these things since then. Um, but Campbell went back and asked the question, you know, are there narratives about society that you find similarity between between different societies over time. And he indeed came up with a set of different narratives um, that sort of united various, uh, came out of a lot of different uh, experiences over time, different societies. Um, they all sort of had the same story, and that was called the hero's journey. The hero's journey was, sort of, in effect, a journey about a prince in a castle um, uh, living a good life, but learning that a damsel was in distress in another castle, being threatened by a, by some sort of dragon, and so the hero leaves leaves the safety of home and goes out and faces the dragon, slays the dragon, saves the woman, comes back with her, and then is then much strengthened. It becomes becomes heroic because of taking on the dragon, and and there there are many many uh, parallels for leaders who start out. You know, from a home environment, which usually is helpful to have a very, very good, strong personal home environment, you know, with an intact family. But people who sort of leave the nest or leave the castle to go out and face the bigger world uh, and, and, and get, get, get hardened up through having to meet some big challenge like the dragon. Uh, and that is a, that's a way that you develop an inner sense of who you are. And I think most people now agree, leadership starts from within. You've got to learn how to lead yourself before you can serve others. Um, You have to, and it begins with self-awareness. Who are you? Do you understand even who you are? Do you have a distorted view of who you are? Because it's really important that your view of yourself have some uh, agreement with a lot of people around you. Uh, But it's not just a question of knowing yourself. It's then a question, can you take can you deal with the temptations that you feel in your life? That, that we all, uh, Carl Jung argued, we all have a bright side, but we all have, some, have a dark side as well. And can you conquer your dark side? Can you bring it under control? For example, I worked for Richard Nixon uh, as, a young, as a young man, it's a long story, but I went in as a very young guy coming out of the military. Um, and I found in him, he, he remains, I think, the best strategist that I've known in the White House uh, over the last 50 years or so. Um, and, you know, driving apart, putting a wedge between China and Russia, for example, and triangulating, instead of having a, a bipolar world, triangulating the world made us a much stronger country because we, we split apart and we could divide and conquer the Russians and the Chinese. And that, yeah, so if that were all that Richard Nixon did, you would have to say he was a pretty good president. But it was not. He had he had had these inner demons inside him that he had never learned to control, and they they got the better of him, and they he he became self destructive. You know, he told David Frost when I asked the question, 
He said, how did it all happen? How did Watergate all happen? He, and Nixon said, I gave my enemies a sword and they ran me through. And that's basically what happened. But here was a president, who would, a man who would have been a good, could have been a good president, had the ambitions to be that, had the capacity to be a good president. And yet he, he, he self-destructed and he had to go. It, it was a scandal. He had to leave. It was important for the democracy that he leave. Uh, and we paid a price for that as a country uh, because of the, the so much trust was lost in government because of uh, because of uh, Watergate and because of Vietnam. And we've never fully recovered the trust that we need for a self-governing democracy. So one last question I have uh, sure. for you is if there's anything that you want young readers to take away from reading your book, what is it? Oh, I think that uh, I hope they will take away the view that they can make a difference, uh, that the time has come for them to get in the arena, to, to finish up their schooling and, and, and get in the arena and help this country restore itself. That doesn't mean you can't hold a job doing something else. What it does mean is you want to be active in your community. And the earlier you get started, the more impact you'll have. But it can be done. You know, the, the Greta Thunberg, proved that a young person can move the world. Malala proved that. Miss Hutchinson helped to prove that. The Parkland kids coming out of the, the, the Florida, when the shootings are happening in Florida, they helped to change our minds on gun control and, and get new legislation passed. You, you, you then look at uh, Black Lives, look at the Me Too movement. They really changed our, their uh, efforts on, on the freedom and independence of women not being subject to discrimination and harassment. Um, and then the, the Black Lives Matter movement. Me Too movement started by a young girl in her, what, in her 20. Black Lives Matter uh, group started by three black women in their 20s and 30s. Um, change can come. It is possible. It is hard. It requires perseverance. There are setbacks we've, we've discovered again and again. Uh, but change can come, and the earlier the young people get in the arena, the better the chance that the country has to turn a corner and get ourselves out of the terrible mess we're in now. I totally agree. And it's worth reading that. Uh, I think you include this in your book, the quote by Teddy Roosevelt about the man in the arena. And that's such a powerful quote. Yeah, um, it is. And, and no matter what that arena looks like, it can be big or small, but just for people to get into it and help know that they can make a difference. Yeah. I think yes. your book definitely achieves that. One of the things you talk about is mentors and yeah. uh, how important they can be. And, you know, it's very hard for young people to recognize that they need mentors or even on how to get them. But you also yeah. talk about the difference between sponsors and mentors. Yes. So why don't you address that question for our listeners? Well, I, th I think if you're interested in, in mentoring, I think every young person needs a mentor. Um, I think you, there's nothing better than asking. You know, the, the, you, if you find somebody, you maybe a faculty member, maybe somebody who's in your church or your synagogue, um, but ask them outright. You know, young people come up to me on a regular basis and say, hey, can you help me? And I try to, and sometimes I fail, and sometimes, you know, maybe I'm helpful. Um, but I do think it's important. I think one of the great things about mentoring is the mentor learns a lot, too. Yes. yes. We can learn a lot from the younger generation. We need to understand their perspective. If we're going to have a society that's integrated, it needs to be integrated multi-generational. You know, that, that people, that, that there's a lot of respect for the young, but there's also a lot of respect for the old. Um, we, you know, we don't treat our old people very, very well compared to many other countries. Um, so, I, so mentorship is different from sponsorship in this sense. Mentorship is about how you can uh, improve yourself within a group um, yeah, in terms, of especially if you're an emerging leader, someone who's helping you sort of navigate the shoals and, and helping point out where the potholes are and everything like that so that you can, you can improve your performance. Sponsorship, by contrast, is when somebody older in your organization becomes um, your your guru could becomes uh, the person who helps you and and pushes within the organization for you to have more and more responsibility. Mm -hmm. You you are you you in effect become the sponsor and you become the champion of that individual. And there's you know that you you can make a major difference if you're 
well known in a if you're well known in a field and somebody gets a letter from you extolling a young person, if you're high up in a field and you're a ch- and you're a champion for that young person, there's there's that young person has a much better chance of becoming you know going going through the door and being given greater responsibility because someone is speaking up, you know. We talk a lot about the importance of resumes. Resumes are very important, but it's the word of mouth about a young person that really makes a difference. And when you're out looking for a hire, you want excellent, you know, you've got these two things you're really looking for. Then you call your friends and say, hey, do you know any young person who can do this or somebody who's capable of doing this? And that's what, um, yeah, you know. Uh, that's and so finding people through word of mouth is very very important. If I can't call two or three people, um, uh, that, that I get the name, and I said I'm going to call these three people, and, they, and I called one of those people, and they say, yeah, "This is a terrific person. You want to jump jump for it." I pay a lot of attention. If I go out and the person says, "Well, you know, I guess I guess he's all right. Doesn't have much of a work ethic, but he's working on." And he sort of sounds like a B, B plus or B minus person, you know, screw it. I haven't got time for that. I've got, I want to put people in my organization who are, you know, first class, not second class or third class. Sounds good. And can our education system do something to teach leadership? Um, Yes. As I said, I know the military academies, as you've noted, do a good job of it. But what about high schools and colleges? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I, yes, I can. St- I think it starts in high school at least. You know, teamwork. Are you good? You know, I, I would encourage young people. You know, be on a be on a sports team. You know, we have Title IX. We have a lot of young women now we know have gotten have gotten started in, in their careers now. And nine out of ten CEOs, I believe, uh, who are women, got their start on the athletic fields when they were young. That's really really interesting. So Title IX, I think, has opened the door to a lot of women getting getting opportunities in life. Um, but I also think that universities are starting to take leadership more seriously. In particular, I would cite three major elite universities. One is Stanford. Uh, they have something called the Knight Hennessy Program. They raised $750 million, $750 million for a leadership development program called Knight Hennessy. One of the big donors is Phil Knight out of Nike, and the other was John Hennessy, who was president of Stanford and stepped down to help run this program. So, and they've got this big endowment and they're working on it. And it's a program that, that if you qualify to get into it, not only do you have, are you part of a group that sort of like Knight Hennessy Fellows, uh, but you also get your tuition paid. Uh, for a graduate program anywhere in Stanford, you get yourself into a graduate program. This the Knight Hennessy pays your entire deal. They get they they pay they pay your stipend for living. They they have international opportunities. They have internships in Silicon Valley. This is a very serious attempt to to, to uh, uh, encourage more leadership. The Yale University Law School has now started a major program because they that I've heard a number of 150 million dollars on this. I'm not sure about that number, but that's what I've been told on, on the grapevine. Um, and it is a program that recognizes a fairly significant number of people, graduates of Yale Law School, do not practice law. They got to go on to lead institutions, they, and they're very socially minded. And this is a program to get to prepare them for that. Harvard, I, I, I am deeply involved and in help to get off the ground a leadership center. And one of the things we do is we've, we, we've hired more faculty in the leadership area. There are a number of them are practitioners. Uh, I, uh, you know, I come out of the world of practice. We just, we just hired Deval Patrick, who was governor of uh, Massachusetts, a uh, very successful uh, black leader. Um, uh, we, we have, you know, women we brought in and we've raised money for student fellowships. Uh, I've got a program about 135 student fellowships a year with money that I and others raised. Um, uh, to 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 bring in as Stanford is doing as Yale is doing, um, yeah, more people. So I think this is something that's coming, and I think other universities are starting to you know pay a lot of attention to it. And I think it's going to, I think it has the possibility of spreading because people are beginning to recognize, you know, these young people could be there. There's something different about this group that's coming through right now. They're 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 very encouraging, and 
we, we, need, we need to seize this moment. And we ought to be doing it through more leadership development. It's very encouraging. Um, and certainly at some point, whether we want to or not, the new leaders are going to be running yes. the country. And so yep. having them prepared, um, yep. what would you say are the most important traits that, because I know in your book you talk about from time immemorial, there are yep. certain traits that have always been true for leaders. What yeah. are those, and yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. how do you it, learn them? Good question. Now listen, there are there are, there are new ways of uh, being a leader today that are important. We didn't see so much. We used to look for leaders who were um, uh, well-rounded people. Increasingly, in organizations today, um, as say universities, uh, the the search is on for people who are. Pretty good across the board, but then have at least one specialty, you know, something they do really, really well. It may be, you know, you play, play, play the violin uh, in, a, in a youth orchestra, or it may be that you're, you're a terrific writer and you're, you're curious and you want to work with a school newspaper, or you could be, a, you know, you, you could be terrific at, uh, at football or whatever it may be. But you, you need, you're looking for people who together, it's like forming an orchestra. If you find somebody who's good on the violin, you want somebody who can handle the cello, and you want somebody who can handle the trombone, and you, you you want people with different strengths. You put them together, and you get an orchestra, and that's when you get great music. And but but you don't find a bunch of people who are mediocre and everything. You find people who are really really good in some in something, and you try to work and you. You, you should learn how to work on improving your strengths. Don't worry too much about things that you're weak in. Make sure that your weaknesses are not disabling, you know, that you succumb to temptations and whatever it may be. But you work on your strengths. Go from, go from good to great on your strengths, you know, really so that you're a terrific, you know, bassoonist um, and, and or you're terrific to violin. Um, but now, what I'm, re I'm really glad you raised with the question about there are some enduring qualities of leadership that go back 2,500 years or go back to the, the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans. You know, they believe very much in, in character, character development. They believe very much in, um, in individual strength, um, and they believed in courage. They were very, very uh, insightful about courage. But if you go back and read Plutarch and the various kind of profiles he has in the Greeks and Romans, they're almost all about the strengths that they brought to it. But then there's always usually an Achilles heel. There's something, there's a weakness out there. And they can, and unless they deal with the weakness too, that disabling weakness, uh, they can fail. Um, but I, I think that uh, another part of learning from the ancients, another quality that's really important about leadership, and that... Uh, if you want to be a leader, it's hard work, and you're often going to fail somewhere along the way, and you've got to be prepared for failure. You've got to brace yourself for that, and it helps if you go back and, and study the Stoics. The Stoics were people essentially in Greece and Rome whose, whose philosophy was when something is happening outside you, you that you cannot control, that you have no control over the issue. Don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. Focus your mind on things you can control, you know, things that are within your purview. Um, but don't waste your time on things you can't control because it's just, it just gets you very, very, it makes life very stressful and you don't get any progress because you don't have any control over it. So focus on the other thing. And so our prisoners of war during the Vietnam War, in particular John McCain and a fellow named Jim Stockdale, really stood for this proposition that, Learn from the Stoics. Take something there. Nelson Mandela famously learned from the Stoics, you know, because he, he was able to absorb things and stand up and became larger than lifetime figure. Um, you know, great progress can be made in the world from people who learn how to lead, who can build a following, but who also have character, they have courage, and they have capacity. The three C's, courage, capacity, and and uh, and um, courage, capacity, and character. Character, <laughs> yeah, character. <laughs> and I would say that's the most important because 
you've mentioned a couple of accomplishments of Richard Nixon. You yeah. mentioned uh, EPA, which he started. You mentioned yeah. Title IX, which he yep. started. And, but his character was so deeply flawed yep. that he became a failed president. And I think we're seeing that in the last former president, whose character was so deeply flawed that he could not succeed. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think you're the perfect kind of person to go in and work with young people because you had that army job, you've had these various responsibilities in the Carter administration. You've seen, you know, you've seen it. You've been in the big leagues. But it's been great to work with Victor and to see his views and his ideas and yeah. to watch him grow into someone who I think will be a leader Good. in well, our our coming government. So well, there's it's been an very exciting. Yeah, intergenerational quality about that, the two of you working together, which is really nice. Thank you. And thank you for being with us. It's been great talking to you and value your wonderful experiences and uh, hope people will learn from this book and take seriously learning how to be a leader because we need them in America. So thank you very much for being with thank us. Thank you. Hey, take care. Thank you so much for watching or listening to this episode of iGen Politics with David Gergen. We hope you enjoyed it as much as Jill and I did, and that you'll tune in next week for another great episode of iGen Politics. In the meantime, you can subscribe to us wherever you follow your podcasts. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, you can also rate us and review us there. And we hope you'll leave a five-star review and rating, as that helps us tremendously. You can also subscribe to us on YouTube and like this video, and also press the bells for our weekly notifications every Wednesday. We'll see you next week for another episode of iGen Politics. Thanks so much.